You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. We're going to read together verses 8 through verse 6, verse 17. 8 through verse 17. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and their higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would grant us to have open eyes, active minds, and receptive hearts to your truth. We pray that we would hear in the pages of Scripture your voice to us in the Word as it is explained and as we hear it here in Scripture. May you be glorified through us, our response to these things. We pray that you would work in our hearts to the glory of your own name and for your sake. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. It seems that we are hardwired as human beings, born with a hardwiring that inclines us to view riches in the way that the world views riches, in the way that the Satan would have us to view riches. We sometimes see them as an unmitigated good. And by that I mean that we see view riches and wealth as being always good in all circumstances and all situations, and, and, and no matter who has them or how they get them, that riches and wealth are a good thing, an unmitigated good. And that is, a, that is a very worldly and earthly way of viewing riches. And that was the mistake that Asaph made in Psalm 73 when he lamented the prosperity of the wicked. And he, he saw the wicked who had all of these riches and he said to himself, why is it that God would give so much of those good things to people who hate him as much as they do? Because he saw riches and wealth as being an, an unmitigated and unqualified good, good in, in, in all things. Um, Riches do bring us a lot of good things. Riches can bring us a lot of good things. That is the honest testimony of Scripture. Uh, but it's not always good, and not everything about riches are good. We tend to view them as good because they provide for our needs. They give us shelter and clothing and food. Those are good things. But then riches go beyond that, and they can end up providing for us things that, or at least falsely providing for us, things that only God should provide for us. Security and contentment, at least we think that they're going to make us content. And riches can tend to bring us uh, certain conveniences and comforts in this life, and they have the potential of distracting and drawing our hearts away from the one true God and His glory and His purposes and fixing our mind on Him and attracting our hearts to the riches themselves. That is the danger of riches. So riches are not an unmitigated or unqualified good. 
Scripture is honest in its assessment of wealth in this world because there are things and ways in which wealth can be a harm to us. There are ways in which wealth is a danger to us. For instance, um, wealth presents certain spiritual dangers to us. We can begin to, uh, if we get fat and full and we have all that we need and riches become so abundant, it can begin to draw our hearts away from God and we can begin to forget who is the one who has provided all of these things. And we start to think that we have these things because of some skill or ability or, or goodness on our behalf rather than seeing God as the giver of the good things. We see the th- good things in themselves and we begin to trust in them and we begin to put our affections on them. And this is why Agur in Proverbs chapter 30 said this, Two things I have asked of you, speaking to the Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. That was the first thing. The second thing, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Agur prayed, Lord, do not give me poverty. Do not afflict me with poverty. Or don't afflict me with riches either. Because if I am poor, then I will be in want and in need, and I might steal and profane the name of my God. And if I am rich, then I get fat and full and I forget God. And I say, who is the Lord? And I trust only in my riches. That that is a very real spiritual danger with wealth and with riches. Riches can also have an addictive quality to them, can't they? Once we have a few of them, we want more of them. And as we learned last week, riches cannot satisfy. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The one who loves income and abundance will not be satisfied with its income. And then riches should also be seen as something that God sometimes judges people with. And that is really the point of Psalm 73. Asaph lamented the prosperity of the wicked because he saw the wicked prospering and thought to himself, God is blessing the wicked with all of these great things. And what Asaph came to recognize was that the wealth that the impenitent wicked quote-unquote enjoyed was actually the first stroke of divine judgment upon him. What if false teachers are rich, not because God is blessing them, but because God is judging them? That is the reality of riches. It can be a blessing upon the righteous. It can also be a curse and a judgment and the first stroke of divine judgment upon the impenitent wicked. So the wealthy are not without their concerns. The wealthy are not without their troubles. They're just different concerns and different troubles. In fact, we might say that the wealthy have troubles and concerns that only money can buy, and they do. All of their troubles and concerns are just different than ours, but they're they're not without them. And that is the honest assessment of Scripture. It's the honest assessment of Solomon in this passage in Ecclesiastes 5 as we're beginning to see his perspective on wealth and income and the abundance of riches that some people have. And we started this section on riches and wealth in verse 8 of chapter 5. It goes through the end of verse 9 of chapter 6. It's kind of an extended section. We saw in verses 5 to 8 that Solomon laments the oppression of the poor. The oppression of the, the poor were being oppressed by those who were powerful and rich enough to oppress them. And just in case you think that the answer to being oppressed as a poor person is to love money and have more of it, he answers that in verses 10 to 12 where he shows that money itself cannot satisfy, it cannot provide security, and it cannot provide sleep. And so now we come to verse 13, where Solomon is again here describing the riches of the wealthy, and he describes for us two grievous evils, two things that are a grievous evil. The first is in verse 13, that is riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. And the second is when all of those riches are lost because of a bad investment, and somebody is deprived of the things that they have worked for. So you'll notice the term grievous evil is used in verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Down in verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. That is, here's a second one, another one, that exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. In other words, the two things that are grievous evils is riches being hoarded and then riches being lost so that we die without anything. 
Those are the two evils, and they're actually two opposite extremes, though both of these cases that Solomon describes in this passage have a lot of things in common. So we're going to look at these two evils, these two grievous evils. The first, riches being hoarded, and the second, riches being lost. So let's look first at verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Now notice that Solomon's returning to a couple of his favorite themes. Grievous evil, that's even funny to say. It's fun to say. It's kind of like evil can evil. Kind of a fun thing to say. Grievous evil. There is a grievous evil, and this is the grievous evil, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. He's returning to some, some familiar themes. He mentions grievous. This is the fifth time in this book that he describes something as being a grievous evil or describes something as being grievous. Earlier in the book, Solomon uses the term grievous to describe uh, tasks that God afflicts us with, that we work and that we labor. Back in chapter 4, he used it to describe the word grievous, to describe the man who works himself into almost to the point of death, and he has no dependent, he has nobody to pass it on to, and he never asks himself, for whom am I depriving myself of riches? He has nobody to even give it to, and yet he works and works and accumulates all of this stuff. Solomon says that is a grievous task. Working like that is a grievous task. So there is this idea of something being grievous or taxing or burdensome. It kind of ties in with the idea of vanity or, or even the next phrase, under the sun. This is a grievous evil that I have observed under the sun. He is assessing something again from the perspective of, of this world. He is describing life as it is lived down here without any kind of a divine perspective, though he is giving to us a God's divine perspective on riches and wealth. So this is a grievous evil, verse 13. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. So the first one is hoarded riches. And the word hoarded there describes somebody who heaps up something. He can't get enough of it, so he accumulates more and he socks it away. He refuses to use it. He refuses to enjoy it. He just packs it away and accumulates more and more and more. And even when I use the term hoard, hoarding or hoarder, you think in your mind probably of television programs that you've seen or news reports of people who are known as hoarders, right? I'm presuming that we have... No hoarders here amongst us because what I'm going to say is probably going to be very offensive to you. But when we see these news reports, and I can't even watch the news reports in the television programs because it's, it's truly, I think, one of the most tragic things that we, we could possibly see. Somebody who heaps up stuff that really should be thrown away. It's garbage. It's garbage. Now, I'm not the type of person who has sentimental attraction, attack, attack, attachment to almost anything. Thank you. I'm not, a, I'm not the type of person who has a sentimental attachment to almost anything. If, if my house burned down while we were sitting here and lost everything in it, I could care less. I really could. There's nothing in there that is sentimental. It's all in my, the memories are in my head. So I can get rid of anything. I have no problem throwing stuff away, though I do collect quite a bit of stuff. I have no problem throwing it away. So hoarders, hoarders are people who collect all of their stuff together. And some of it's garbage. It's pizza boxes. It's, it's newspapers from years gone by. It's empty containers of this, that, and the other thing. And they collect it because they think that they can never have enough. And what, how does a hoarder die? When hoarders finally die, they, it seems that they, there's just, by the time they die, there's just one path from the front door to the very back bedroom where they are dead, and that path is cluttered and stuff is stacked up on every side because they have collected all of these things. So when a hoarder buys one bottle of shampoo, they buy a hundred bottles of shampoo. When they buy one package of Top Ramen noodles, they buy a thousand packages of Top Ramen noodles. They buy more Top Ramen than a college student could eat in an entire lifetime because they have to have all of this stuff around them. And you and I rightly recognize that there is a mental and spiritual issue that goes on there. It is a spiritual issue of idolatry. There is some aspect of insecurity 
There is some aspect of, of their relationship with the Lord that is not right there. So we, we look at something like that and we say there's a spiritual issue. It's an idolatry issue that is going on there. They're not understanding what is in this text and what Solomon is teaching. They're not understanding God's perspective on things and the things of this world. And yet when we see somebody who does this with wealth, we think, oh, what a lucky person. What a lucky person. I mean, man, that is just God's blessing, right? Somebody heaps up top ramen noodles, they're crazy. Somebody heaps up money, and they're lucky. We want to be just like them. And yet the hoarder dies surrounded by his wealth with one little path out through which they drag his body and drop it into a grave. A hoarder dies just like everybody else. This is, I have seen, Solomon says, it is a grievous evil under the sun. Someone who heaps up things, and he's describing here of wealth, particularly of wealth, he heaps up wealth to himself, and he does this to his own harm. Now this might describe the person who loves money that we looked at in verse 10. The one who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he loves income with its abundance with its income. This might describe the lover of money who gathers and gathers and gathers and collects. He doesn't use it, he doesn't enjoy it, but he just heaps it up for himself because he loves it, because it is his idol. He has affections for it, and, and it is an idolatry issue. So he heaps up wealth so that he can have all of it. It might describe that individual. It can also describe somebody who doesn't necessarily have a love for money. He has other insecure issues, other idolatry issues, but his affections necessar are necessarily rest on that money and on what he thinks that money can buy him or what he thinks that money can gain him. So he heaps it up to his own hurt. And this may even describe somebody like the man Jesus described in Luke chapter 12. Do you remember that he told the story about the man who had an abundant land and his land was so abundant and so productive that after the harvest he sat back and he looked at all that he had and he said, look at all that my land has produced. Look at all that I have. I don't even, I don't even have barns big enough to store all of this stuff in. So here's what I'll do. I'll build myself bigger and better barns so that I can store up and heap up the things that have been provided for me. And Jesus said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. All this man was concerned about was heaping up things without giving any thought at all to the condition of his soul and whether he was rich before God or not. One of the most miserly people in all of history was a man named John Wendell. You heard that name? He lived over in New York back at the turn of the 1900s. John Wendell and his six sisters were given a, quite a, a large inheritance from their parents. And John Wendell convinced five of his six sisters never to marry and the six of them lived together in one house for 50 years in New York. And when the final sister, when, when the last sister, remaining sister, finally died in 1931, her estate was valued at over $100 million. That woman lived, she had one dress that she made for herself, and she wore it for 25 years. This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Solomon says. A man hoarding up riches for himself to his own hurt. To his hurt. Now, how is it that riches hurt us? There are a few different ways. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, offers three, I think, very helpful ways. And I'll give you, I'll summarize them, stealing this from Matthew Henry, but I, I think this accurately summarizes the ways in which riches can, can hurt us. Number one, riches can hurt us because they make us proud and secure and in love with the world. That's the danger of riches. They, they harm us by making us proud and secure and in love with the world. We look at riches and we think, this is, I'm secure now because I have enough. I've heaped up enough. I have enough and I have my, I have my affection set on these things. And so now I am secure. I have, I have hedged my bets against a changing economy or a stock market or inflation or retirement or this bad investment or kids needing this. I have heaped up enough and we begin to sense security from our riches. A security really that is only a false security because riches can't truly provide security, as you're going to see in a moment, but it is a false security. But they make us feel secure, and they make us trust in the riches themselves instead of the God who gives those riches. 
So Matthew Henry writes, Riches make it very difficult for people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nay, they even help to shut people out of it. That's one of the, that's one of the uses of prosperity that God, that's one of the things that God does with the prosperity of the wicked. Is he actually, it is a curse that draws the hearts of the wicked away from him and secures their judgment and their damnation because of their impenitence. It's an aspect of wealth. So Matthew Henry rightly notes they can help shut us out of heaven. If God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and riches puff us up and make us prideful, then riches put, can end up putting us into a place where God resists us and does not give us grace. Second, Matthew Henry writes, riches have the capacity or give us the capacity to do great evil. You ever thought of this? Matthew Henry writes this, quote, They do hurt with their riches, which not only put them into a capacity of gratifying their own lusts, and living luxuriously, but give them an opportunity of oppressing others and dealing hardly with them. Close quote. So what Henry is saying is that when we have riches, we have greater capacity to do evil. Have you ever thought that maybe one of the things that God does in keeping riches from you is to prevent you from having the capacity to do evil things? Because once we have the ability to do it, we might do something evil with those riches. One of the ways that God prevents us from doing evil is by not giving us the means to follow through with the evil that we might do that riches would grant to us. The third way that riches harm us is they put us in the place of being harmed by others. So Henry writes this, they would not be envied and they would not be robbed if they were not rich. Right? So Henry, Henry says this, it is the fat beast that is led first to the slaughter. In other words, riches make you the target of other men's avarice and greed. It is the rich that people go after because they want to take what doesn't belong to them and take it from somebody who has it. Maybe one of the things that God does in keeping riches far from us is to protect us from the evil that would come our way if we had those riches. Your child would not be abducted and held for ransom. You wouldn't be robbed or broken into in the middle of the night. God prevents us from doing evil and he presents, prevents evil from happening to us by preventing the riches from coming to us. So Solomon says, this is a grievous evil that men hoard up this wealth to themselves and they do it to their own hurt. Now what Solomon is not describing here is saving. How many of you think that when I'm talking about hoarding, that I'm also talking about saving? Those two are two different things. We're not talking about savings. There's nothing wrong with saving for an investment, for your retirement, or for college, or for the future, or for an unforeseen medical emergency, or for a rainy day, or a car, or a house, or something of that nature. Scripture speaks positively of accumulating wealth by hard work and by diligence, by wisdom and by saving it. Scripture speaks positively of those things. But hoarding and saving are not the same thing. What is the difference between hoarding and saving? The one who saves is saving because he is mindful and concerned about others. His spouse or his children or his neighbor or doing good to somebody. And so he saves that he might do that and that he might use his resources wisely. The person who hoards is not concerned about others. He is concerned about accumulating more of his God. Now how can you tell whether you are saving or hoarding? Only you can tell that. Right? What is your concern? The hoarder is concerned about his money. The saver is concerned about other people in his saving. And so he saves to be diligent to provide for other people. The hoarder just wants more of what he wants. And so each of us has to determine, am I hoarding or am I saving? And the issue really is what are we doing and why are we doing it? And are we doing it for others or are we doing it for ourselves? That's the difference between a hoarder and a saver. So that's the first grievous evil. A man who hoards, he hoards up his riches and those riches only end up causing his harm. This is uh, causing him harm. This is difficult for us to think, uh, to think in these terms because we are not used to think of riches being a danger to us. We're not used to think of wealth as being something that can harm us, but there are, there are ways in which wealth can be a great harm to those who have it. 
So the first evil, hoarding riches. Then there is a second grievous evil under the sun, and it is in verse 14, 15, and 16, and that is riches that are lost. And look at what Solomon describes here in verse 14. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, and there was nothing to support him, he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. The second grievous evil is riches that are lost. Now Solomon's description here, and notice that these are two, notice that these are two polar opposites. One man has everything, and the other man loses everything. So these are two, two extremes of this spectrum. One who hoards it all up, and one who has this world's goods, and he ends up losing it all through a bad investment. And notice that Solomon's description of this is so general that probably all of us can think of an example, or someone we know, or a scenario in which this could happen to us. It's very general. He doesn't even address the motive. He just describes a man who, who, who has this world's good. Maybe he's somebody who has loved money. And so he has loved money and has accumulated a lot of it. And then he sees this opportunity where he can turn $1,000 into $100,000. And by investing $1,000 of his money, he can get rich quick. And so he makes that investment, maybe taking all of his fortune that he has heaped up and putting it on black, 21 black on the roulette wheel, as it were, hoping to cash in on that once-of-a-lifetime, get-rich-quick-scheme investment. And then what happens to that investment? Loses it all. Turns out being a bad investment. You could be describing the person who loves money and in an attempt to gain more of it, invest everything he has into something that is silly and foolish and unwise. He may also be describing things that happen to us over which we have no power. This could describe equally as well. Somebody who is simply investing his money in a money market or a stock market or some sort of a business that looks good on paper, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not, there's no substance there. And after investing everything that he has accumulated and worked for, he finds out that a birdie made off, made off with all of his retirement, and he has nothing at the end of the day. Or he's invested in a business, and there was really nothing substantive there in the business. And so by the time he gets the notification, the man who was the CEO of the business is living in Cozumel, and this poor fool's left holding the bag. And guess what? It's an empty bag. It's just a bad investment. It can, it can, be, it can be something that somebody falls into because their, their, their motives are bad. It can also be something that somebody falls into just because that's just life in this fallen world. Sometimes the economy changes. Sometimes technology changes. Sometimes the real estate bubble pops at just the wrong wrong time. Sometimes your timing of getting in, you know, you're supposed to buy low and sell high and you think the high is the low, but it's actually the high high and pretty soon it's going really low, but you buy high and then you end up selling low and your timing was just off or you followed bad advice or, and it's not that you're necessarily seeking to do this with, with bad motives. It's just this is the way that it happens. How many of us lost money in our retirement in 2008 when everything collapsed? That affected a lot of people. There was a lot of wealth that was lost. Right? In fact, you, you, you can imagine these scenarios because all of us have lived through these things and seen things that happen like this. And so we can relate to this, that these things happen, and they happen to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And so it is, it is just generally stated here that a man loses everything by a bad investment. And this is not something that necessarily anybody can prevent. You see, the hoarder or the person with money, they can't prevent the market from collapsing, can you? Can you single-handedly do that? No, you can time getting out of it just right and escape by the skin of your teeth, but you can't prevent the market from collapsing. You can't prevent a real estate bubble from popping. You can't prevent a technology bubble from popping. 
These things cannot be prevented. You can't prevent thieves from breaking in a seal and you can take all of your money and put it in a mattress and hide it off in the corner of your closet and then when you're gone one day, your house burns down and all of your wealth with it. These are the things that happen to us in a sin-cursed fallen world and we can't prevent them. And all of a sudden, everything that we have worked for can vanish in an instant. Quickly. Even from things that we have nothing to do with, things that are completely outside of our control. And we can go because of something that happens overnight from riches to rags and we can do nothing about it. That's the reality of life, isn't it? It's general enough that all of us can sympathize with this. Imagine this scenario that a man works for 40 or 45 years and he saves up and he scrimps and he saves and he, and he denies certain things for himself for, for four decades of working the factory job and working hard and he gets ready to retire and he's finally heaped up enough at the end of his retirement that he thinks he can live on. So he cashes in, he gets ready to retire, he announces it, the, the boss gives him a golden watch, thank you for your 40 years of service and the best to you, we're going to have a retirement party and he gets ready to finally enjoy and to live off of everything that he has scrimped and saved and earned for his whole life because he... The day's finally come. I can finally live and enjoy it, right? What could possibly go wrong? You think of anything? I can think of a few things, right? You chuckle because you can think of a hundred scenarios. He gets in a car accident on the way to his retirement party and he dies. And it is all taken from him in an instant. Or one week after his retirement, he is diagnosed with a terminal illness and six months later, he's dead. Or... The first Monday of his retirement, he's sleeping in, and while he's sleeping in, the stock market loses 25%. He can't bail out of it. It's too late now, and before the end of the day, he's lost 50% of his accumulated wealth. That can happen. Or the government decides it's going to print its way out of debt, and because of hyperinflation, the $500,000 that he saved up to live on now won't even buy him a steak dinner, and it's all gone. Does that happen to everybody? doesn't happen to everybody. But it happens frequently enough that all of us should be warned about putting our trust in riches. It has happened to millions of people all over the face of this planet in every country that has ever existed, in every economy that has ever existed for all of human history, this happens. That is why Solomon says, the minute you look upon riches, it sprouts wings and flies away like an eagle to the heavens. It's gone. There's nothing we can do about it. So why are we foolishly trusting in these things? Why are we foolishly setting our hearts and affections on these things? Why do we foolishly strive for these things as if we can somehow gain security in them? I'm not suggesting that we are not at all concerned about these things, but I am suggesting that there is some, there's some middle way between having no concern for these things and being obsessed by these things. Because Solomon is describing the man who is obsessed by these things. So there is the hoarder, there is the man who heaps up these things, and then there is the man who... Uh, who loses all of these things because of a bad investment. And though this doesn't happen to everybody, there are some people who retire, and there are some people who live out the, the years of their retirement, late into the sunset years, and enjoy it, and they have provided for themselves and their family well. That does happen. It does happen often enough. But there is one thing that nobody can evade that takes everything from us, and what is it? It's verse 15 and verse 16. Verse 15, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, so will he die. And what is the advantage for him who toils for the wind? You know what comes and takes everything from us? Death. It strips the pauper and the prince equally bare before it throws them in a hole in the ground. That's what death does. You may be able to navigate bad investments and hold on to everything all the way to the end, but in the end, death is going to get you and it's going to take everything away from you. 
And, and your, your kids are going to parcel out what it is that you leave behind. They're going to sell off some of it. They're going to give it to goodwill. The thieves are going to break in and steal it. The IRS is going to come. Now I'm repeating myself. The, the IRS is going to come and they're going to take their share of it. And everybody's going to rob you blind. And for a few years, all your kids will sit around and they will talk about you at Christmas and at Thanksgiving. But after a few years of that, you're going to be forgotten. Everything you've accumulated will be forgotten. It'll all be taken away and it's all gone. Death makes paupers of us all because it takes everything from us. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, when he died in 2011, he's worth $10.2 billion. I'll give you three guesses at how much he took with him. If you guessed zero, it's winner, winner, chicken dinner. You got it. Zero he took with him, not a penny. And I'll tell you something, one second after Steve Jobs died, his $10.2 billion meant as much to him as all of your estate will mean to you one second after you die. Nothing. It means nothing. $10.2 billion couldn't buy him one more year on the face of this planet. Couldn't buy him another week, another day, even another hour beyond God's appointed time for him. It meant nothing to him, and it is all gone, and it made Steve Jobs a pauper. And they threw his body in a hole. It's all over with. $10.2 billion, gone. See, this is reality. This is life under the sun. Exactly as a man is born with nothing and dependent upon others, so will he die bringing absolutely nothing with him, taking nothing with him, he dies with nothing. Death takes everything. You can navigate the, the bad investments, and you're not going to navigate death, right? This is life. There are no survivors to this. None of us get out of this alive. No matter how well you do in your investments, no matter how well you do with your saving, no matter how much you put aside, no matter how much you secure it, you cannot secure anything against death because death takes it all from us. And this is a grievous evil. This is life under the sun. It's encouraging, isn't it? It's good to know this. It's good to know this now rather than one second after we die that we think to ourselves, what is the condition of my soul before God? Not how much money do I have at this moment and this time. There's two grievous evils, the man who hoards up everything and the man who loses everything. These are two scenarios that Solomon has presented to us. I think they are two different men and two different extremes of this perspective on wealth. There are certain things that both of these men have in common, and I'll give you four of them. First, both of these men toil for the wind. Because when they die, it's all taken from them. And so they, they, they can no more hold on to this than they can hold on to or grasp the wind. And, and that's what Solomon's point is when he says, what advantage is them? What advantage, what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? He, he works for something that in the end slips through his fingers and he has nothing. What does a man carry in his hand out of all that he has worked, all the fruit of his labor, what does a man carry beyond death? Nothing. He carries nothing with him. And so this is the reality. It's all wind. Everything that we heap up here, whether we heap it up or lose it, it's, we're just grasping after the wind. So what is the advantage? Just, we just get to sit back and watch our money bleed to death and become nothing. We just get to sit back and watch the, the sands pass through the hourglass of time and all of our riches go with it. And then we get to watch ourselves be thrown into a hole at the end of it all and we lose it all. We end up toiling for the wind. The second thing that both of these men have in common is that both of these men, I think, are described in verse 17. Now, there is, there is some debate as to whether or not Solomon is describing the first man or the second man or both men, and I think he is describing both men. Verse 17, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. He may even here be describing one man. I presented to you two different scenarios, but Solomon may be describing one man who hoards up all these things and then loses all of it. So he has everything and then he loses everything. But whether he is the man who hoards or the man who loses what he hoards up or whether those two are the same man, verse 17 is describing him. He lives his life in darkness. And the word darkness there can be translated really oblivion or obscurity is sometimes translated as loneliness. And that's really the idea of it. Not that he, not that he's, 
lives in real physical darkness as if he is blind, but that he lives his life in obscurity and loneliness all by himself. Now the hoarder does this because the hoarder never wants to bring anybody near enough to him to see what he has and want what he has. He doesn't want to bring anybody near enough into his life to covet and possibly take what he has hoarded up. He can't bring anybody near. So he has to kind of live as a recluse in some sense. So he lives in obscurity. He lives in oblivion, kind of in darkness. The poor man who has who loses everything to the bad investment, he also lives in darkness because he lacks the ability to add anything to his life that might bring life or joy. He can't enjoy any of it. The vexation, the sickness, and the anger describe the, the, the man who hoards. The man who hoards is vexed because he can never have enough. What he perceives as his own lack of resources, he can never remedy that, no matter how much he heaps up because he's not satisfied with riches, no matter how much he gathers and collects to himself, he's never satisfied with it. He's never satisfied with it. And so he lives with this constant sense of frustration and vexation. The poor man is vexed because he lost everything. And so he's constantly frustrated and vexed over this because what he did have, he can't now enjoy because it's all been taken from him through a bad investment. And both men live in sickness and in anger. And the idea there is that the rich man, though he has the means to provide remedy for his soul or his physical ailments, he doesn't. I've read of rich people who, though they had the ability to spend money on medical procedures or medicines and things that might have prolonged their life or prevented death for a period of time or even cured them of the sickness, they won't do it. Why? Because they can't let go of the money. The poor man lives in sickness and anger because he doesn't have the ability to provide what might remedy his illness. So these words, darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger, they describe the hoarder and they describe the man who who has nothing and he can't remedy any of these situations. And the fourth, third thing that they have in common is that they spend their days working for something that is ultimately taken from them by death. Whether you're the hoarder or whether you're the person, the poor person who's lost it all, we're all going to be stripped naked of everything we have by death anyway. Both men, though they are on opposite extremes, suffer that same fate. And the fourth thing that they have in common is they end up possessing something that they never get to enjoy. You see, the hoarder never gets to enjoy his wealth because he will not enjoy his wealth. The poor man never gets to enjoy his wealth because it's taken from him and he cannot enjoy his wealth. But neither man ends up enjoying what he has while he has it. The hoarder has everything. And because he has everything, he cannot enjoy it because he will not allow himself to enjoy it. The poor man had everything and he lost it and so now he can no longer enjoy everything that he worked. So both of these men, the man who possesses the fruit of his labor and the man who is robbed of the fruit of his labor, neither one is able to enjoy the fruit of his labor because one man cannot and one man will not. It's a grievous evil, isn't it? And all of this is intended to set us up for verse 18 and 19 and 20, which is Solomon's point. Look at verse 18. We're not going to get to it today. But verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given to him, for this is his reward. So what is Solomon setting us up to understand? You hoard wealth, you cannot enjoy it. You lose all your wealth, you cannot enjoy it. You can invest it and try and get more, but if it is taken from you, you don't get to enjoy it. So here's Solomon's point, this is what is good. Has God given you the fruit of your labor? Enjoy it. This is the gift of God. Solomon comes back to this time and time again, and we will too when we get to verse 18, which won't be next week because next week is Resurrection Sunday. So we're going to be doing something else because I could not find a single passage in Ecclesiastes that would be anywhere near positive enough for a Resurrection Sunday. So we are, thankfully, you will be happy to know, going to get out of Ecclesiastes for Resurrection Day, and then we will jump right back into the darkness on the Sunday following that. So let's pray. Father, you have 
given to us instructions and a, and a mindset and a viewpoint on riches and wealth that this world does not afford. We pray that you would incline our hearts to adopt your perspective on these things, to not covet them, to not love them, to not set our affections on them, to never allow them to distract our hearts and our affections from you, the one true and living God. May we constantly be mindful that in the end, death will take everything from us, and we need to make sure that our souls are right before you, that we have repented of our sin and trusted Christ for salvation, lest we lose everything in this world and everything in the world to come as well. May you be glorified through us as we set our affections upon you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.